Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. Hi and welcome to Radiotherapy. No, don't you just love Melbourne in spring, EpiPen? Crispy sunny days, trees blushing with their first buds of green, flowers blooming behind low brick fences, Dr Kitkat. It's enough to warm the cockles of a cold, cold heart. And funnily enough, the old ticker is our spotlight organ this morning. All four cardiac chambers and a little bit of the arteries too. First up, we'll be speaking with Professor Peter Kistler, a cardiologist and international research leader in cardiac arrhythmias, also known as palpitations. Besides being head of research of electrophysiology at the Baker Institute and head of clinical electrophysiology at the Alfred, Peter has joint appointments as Professor of Medicine at Melbourne Uni and Monash Uni. The immaculately haired cardiologist, you should see a picture of him, drew international attention recently after publication of his New England Journal of Medicine paper on the role of alcohol and coffee in heart palpitations. Today, Peter will be chatting with us about the latest development in heart treatments, especially my favourite, the role of artificial intelligence, quite possibly cardiology GPT. Dr Kunal Verma is Australia's first and only dual-trained clinical geneticist and cardiologist, clearly a high achiever. He is also a National Health and Medical Research Council scholarship recipient and PhD fellow at the Baker Institute and the University of Melbourne. Look, his field is relatively recent, but one that is sure to explode with new discoveries in genetics and how they might affect heart function. I'm getting nods from the panel here. Kunal will be giving the radiotherapy team a tutorial on his specialty area so he can sound at least moderately intelligent around our colleagues at parties. Dr. KitKat, famed psychologist slash registrar, will be in with the quiz and nurse EpiPen has flown back especially from her holiday to tell us the latest in medical journals. Oh, so stick with me, Dr. Mal, and the team for all things heart-related for the next hour of radiotherapy. Good morning. Or oh, should I say, buongiorno. Uh, no, it's EpiPen. Buongiorno. You say that so beautifully. I know. I, look, people practice. said I was quite good at Italian when I was in Italy. Yeah. And I love going into the shops and they say, buongiorno. <laughs> and it's so friendly. So you come back to Melbourne and it's nothing. Morning. <laughs> no, well, you're down to Ligon Street. You can say due cappuccini. Si, and, bene. And, <laughs> si, bene. Yeah, that's the, some extent of your Italian. Good morning, Dr. KitKat. Good morning. You're very both very good at rolling your... Arr, R. Triple R. Yeah. Oh, triple R. Do you speak another language? We. We? Je parle en français un peu. Really? Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> that's <it>. Well, that's <laughs> enough. Yeah. Multilingual. Yeah, yeah, well, look, we, we are, we are. Hey, look, there is so much to get through today and so many um, things to talk mm-hmm. about, some great guests. We should start off with some of the um, latest in the medical journals. Well, Unless... it's not actually a medical journal. I'm going to f- link it with some medical research. Okay, what, but The us... Age, Herald Sun, what yeah, journal? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, Journals Weekly. New idea, no, yeah. No, no, okay, so um, having come... <laughs> Having come back from Italy just three days ago, oh, really? um, I just we were in the south of Italy and we were very 
perturbed to hear about the olive trees. So, yes, two million olive trees died in Puglia. That's on that south coast near the hill. I didn't even know there were there were two oh, million olive trees in Oh, there were a trillion olive trees <laughs> yeah. in southern Italy yeah. and around the world, Spain and other places. Mm. And two million have got this terrible bacterium mm. called Xylella fastidiosis. Fastidiosis? Yes. I wonder who or named that. fastidiosa. Yeah. And um, it's a bit of a weird bacterium yeah. and it gets into the the blood system of the tree. Mm-hmm. So that's that water flow and it creates a gel and it's, it's, it clots up the xylem and the phloem and all those things yeah. of the plants and it chokes them so they die. So they they wither up and all their leaves are, di- are dead. So it's been oh. a drastic mm. um, problem and there is no prevention but um, you do have to pull out the trees and report them to the Italian authorities mm. if you've had it in your crop. Mm. Mm. Um, and, but some of the trees are now becoming resistant, mm. which is good, mm. um, and they've been grafting fresh, unaffected parts of a new a new olive tree onto the old ones, mm. old dead olive trees, and they've been sprouting and mm. coming back to life. And there's the only other thing that they can do is spray a natural detergent on the plants to protect it. But as we were talking about this, um, Dr. Mal, mm-hmm. in our preparation for the show, mm-hmm. um, uh, uh, that how important olive oil is for us. Oh, this is the link with medicine. Oh, yes. oh, olive oil. Yes. Oh, nice segue. Yeah. So thank you. So there's been a gazillion studies about um, the benefits of olive oil and its antioxidant and anti-inflammatory properties Mm -hmm. because, and wait, there's another segue to today's show, Mm -hmm. because it lowers the risk of cardiac disease, cardiovascular disease, some cancers and even dementia in people who consume higher amounts of olive oil than those who do not. That's the Medi diet, isn't it? Mediterranean. Mediterranean. Does it make a difference if it's first pressed, uh, Evo? Now, hang on one minute. So I did a tour of an (laughs) olive tree factory (laughs) and I I met a 1,000-year-old olive tree that was still alive and it was three women that run this um, olive oil business and they said you, it must be extra olive, extra, extra virgin. virgin olive oil to have. Anything else is they call lamp oil. <laughs> so, so that's the real one, extra virgin olive oil. And you can look on the bottles to see where they've come from. See, is that the, oh, sorry, sorry, Mal. Is that the health benefits or the flavour? Mm. It's they, a bit of both. Okay. But it's as Rob was going in to mention about the... Mal. Uh, sorry, Mal, because I'm trying to read at the same time. The ripe olives are processed with without high heat and chemical solvents. So that's cold-pressed Evo, extra that's virgin olive they, oil. Yes, yes. And was so it hyperbole or was it really a thousand-year-old plant? It was. Yeah, you should have seen it. Well, so you can't have a thousand-year-old plant, surely. Excuse- I Can you did really? not doubt these women. If they'd I, owned I, this property was for it a, a good, fossil, or was it a no? Deacon it was living? all gnarly yeah. and intertwined, yeah. and it was sort of looked old. But it, they said <laughs> they they promised me. They promised you. Well, then it must be true. <laughs> they promised but, me. So stick with your extra virgin, virgin olive oil, oil, and it'll save your heart attacks. And does that mean the price of oil is going to go up if like all these trees are dying? Yeah. That's well, not good. 
I don't know what's happened in Australia. But and shouldn't I think we be buying local rather than sort of all these miles? Yes, I think that's the case, isn't it? Uh, yeah, but I try and do that yeah, as much as I can. I think so. But, and there, but there are Spanish olive oils yeah. that I've seen on our shelves. Yeah. So Yeah, I try and go. Go local. Go, go local. local. Go yeah, Australian. Save the miles. Yes. As I'm virtue signalling like no one's business. Um, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so don't. enjoy your olive oil. But one of the things I loved about it was that the bugs that spread this bacterium, uh, they're called leaf-hopping insects. Leaf-hopping. <laughs> I like that it's called Quite. fastidiosa. Yes. Uh, How bizarre. Xylella fastidiosa. Is it to do with fastidiosa? Is it fastidious? Maybe it's a very fastidious. fastidious. It's a very clean, tidy yes. bacterium. Well, anyway. um, Dr. KitKat. Yes. Now, one of the highlights of my month is being quizzed by you. Uh. So that for new listeners to the show, what happens is Dr. KitKat has got three questions. She will then ask those three questions to uh, Nurse EpiPen and myself, and uh, we will try and score points, and we will lord it over the loser <laughs> for the rest of the month. <laughs> okay, got yes. your buzzers ready. Okay, yeah. buzzer. I'm ready. I'm so ready. I've got two heart-related questions, and then oh, a third news, current news question. Okay. Okay, so the blue whale has the heaviest heart in the world. Hmm. Approximately how much does it weigh? Do we get options? Yeah, give us some options. Oh. Um 150 kilograms, 200 kilograms, 250 kilograms, or 300 kilograms. Buzz. Okay. 250. 150. Oh, split the difference. Two, approximately Two, 200, 200 kilograms. Okay. <gasps> the heart weighs 200 kilos. And in, for reference, the average adult human heart aged between 31 to 40 years weighs about 2.8 Wow. Kilos. Wow, so it's like uh, 70 times yeah. heavier. That is amazing. That would be a lot of chambers. A gazillion times heavier yeah, than bigger us. Yeah, they bigger than us. But still, yes. isn't their brain, is their brain bigger than us? It must be bigger than ours. If it's a, a blue blue whale. whale. Yeah. yeah. Does it? I don't, don't we, I we should ask the... the <laughs> yeah, I, I know, the show before us. Yeah, oh, Mar- yes. Marinara. Don't yeah, go, well Marinara. <laughs> okay. Okay, the half a point each. Half a point. On what day of the year do most heart attacks occur? Christmas. Very good. Why do you think that? Because it's stressful. Yeah. yeah. And it's the day after Christmas and New Year's Day are also quite – or New Year's Eve. New Year's Eve, quite yeah. That'd be quite strange, yeah. 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 Or grand finals. As I say, during oh. the grand final last <gasps> yes. week, I almost had a heart yeah. attack. And I, I don't break for either time. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, go pies. Yeah. All right. Simone Biles is the most decorated gymnast yes. in the world. Yes. Yes. yes, yes, yes. And is the only gymnast to perform which move? Which jump that, Oh, it was something on the horse, wasn't it? Yes, the, when you run up to yeah, it. Yeah, when you're up to then, the thing in the horse. Was yeah. it a triple pike or something on the horse? It was a double pike, but oh. you know the name of the... It's called the Biles? No. Well, it is now, I think, because she's yeah. the first person to have done that, so then she gets the jump named after her. Wow. Um, there's another name before yeah, the Biles yeah. jump. Yeah. Heart it's related? It's called the no. Freak Jump. What's it called? The Yurchen Co. Yurchen Co. <laughs> Well, we would never. well, if you can't that's, pronounce yeah, it, then that's not yeah, really a point. Yeah. That's not easy. Yeah. So so let's just uh, sum up for this week um, or for this month. Um, Dr. Mal has won uh, with one and a half points. I won. Oh, yeah. I won yeah, with one and a half points. So Nurse EpiPen, that means um, mm, wash my car, <laughs> <laughs> bring <the> coffee. <laughs> you are listening to Radiotherapy with Dr. Mal Practice, Nurse EpiPen, Dr. KitKat. We'll be back with some real-life experts in the studio coming up after this short Break now. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. 
To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. We've got some incredible experts with us this morning, but first off we've got Peter Kistler. Um, and, yeah, Mal read out a very impressive resume. Well, that's probably a snippet of your resume, Peter. Um, but before we jump in, I always like to ask our guests, yeah, so how did you get into what you're into or where you are, I guess. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, I, I got into uh, cardiology. Uh, initially with medical training, you do a sort of a general residency. And during those times, you know, cardiac arrests on the ward and the whole team goes in and it's mm. a very dramatic um, event. So that kind of got me interested in, in cardiology. And then uh, particularly uh, the electrical side of cardiology is one where um, you know, there's a bit of detective work in, in determining what's going on with people's heart rhythms. And then not only can you treat them with medications, but we can do these procedures called ablations to track where these abnormal circuits are coming from and deliver little burns or cauterisation to fix them. And we see a range of people from kids uh, right through. So, yeah, that's what lured me. Mm. And, and are you doing research and practice or clinical practice yeah yeah and often the two become entwined in in one so a lot of the clinical procedures we do um, also involve a, a research element yeah so do you um I may be a doctor but I'm a PhD so I don't have yeah the medical training but so do you do surgery as well did you is that part of your training or is it internal medicine yeah, no, that's a really relevant question in cardiology. So, yeah, it's a combination of internal medicine, so the understanding of uh, diseases and the use of medications, but also, yeah, I suppose we use the term procedures rather than surgeries sure. um, just because we do them through little tubes through the leg or the, or the artery and the, and the arm. Or, we, you know, we also put in things like pacemakers and defibrillators, which I suppose is more typical surgery, yeah. but it is a real, yeah, hybrid. Yeah. So, um, Peter, AF, so atrial fibrillation is a common heart disorder or the rhythm is abnormal. It's, would you like to explain at the real basic level what AF is, please? Yeah, so I, I suppose even to take it one step back, we think about the heart as having three functions. So we kind of think about the pump function. So when we talk about heart failure, it's when the pump's not squeezing effectively or the valves are faulty. And then we move over to the electrical section, which is where atrial fibrillation comes in. So that's where you, people get this chaotic burst of abnormal activity, um, which might come from a part of the heart. And because all the little heart cells are linked up, you can have one rogue focus in one part of the heart and it throws the whole engine out of sync. Um, and then the third aspect is the blood supply or the plumbing. So when people have a heart attack, it's due to a sudden occlusion of the blood supply to the muscle. Mm. Um there are so many questions that I was yeah, particularly interested when you were talking about accessing the heart through the leg, but I guess I am really curious about a study that you sent us and something that you've spoken about, um, or yeah, you mentioned to us, it's quite interesting, and I also think it's quite interesting, I guess, a study on endurance athletes more likely to have um, coronar coronary blockages. Um, and it sounds a little bit, I guess, dramatic, and by the sounds of it, you know, being drawn to cardiac or cardiology because you liked the drama of heart attacks tell us about the yeah the drama of the yeah this paper so um yeah this this is a, a surprising study and mm. I thought it was a good one for us to to chat about 
given the uh, Melbourne Marathon's on uh, next weekend. Oh, yep. Um, and, and essentially, there's been a little bit of uh, literature around endurance, long-standing endurance athletes having coronary disease. And um, this was a paper that came out of uh, Belgium, which has become a bit of a hub for studying the impact of long-standing sport on the heart. And we're very lucky in Melbourne to have one of the sort of the, the, the rock stars of uh, sports cardiology uh, in Andre Lagersh, who was involved in this study. And essentially what they did was they took, um, they sampled uh, 5,000 people who responded to these advertisements, in, particularly in sports um, uh, magazines and the like, and did coronary CT scans on them, so looked for plaque. And they also looked at their body fat composition and they looked at their fitness testing. And what they found was that those that had been exercising to um, high levels, so more than eight hours per week from before the age of 30, had a higher incidence of plaques in their coronary arteries. And not only that was that there's a concept of a stable versus an unstable plaque. So that kind of rock, you know, calcified lesion in the artery is less likely to cause a heart attack or erupt if that cap is, is solid compared to a thinner, uh, more fragile cap. Um, and, and what was relatively novel in this study was that these long-standing endurance athletes had more of these perhaps less stable plaques as well. Wow, that's goes so. It seems so counterintuitive to things that yeah, yeah. We've always been told like exercise is good for the heart, and I think we even had a teacher at school who was going for a run and had I'm not sure a heart incident, but it just seemed like wow. I, it just seems so yeah, opposite to what you would think. What so why do you or why did they explain that they saw that phenomena? Well, this is the nice thing about science. Was this study the hypothesis was that they were going to see the opposite? Yeah, yeah, um, and and yeah, came out with this. So there, there's a there's a number of theories, and and um, Andre actually, I, I gave him a call ahead of the ahead of the program this morning, and one of his thoughts on this was that this sheer stress effect. So when you're exercising for long periods, you actually do get really high blood pressure. You might get a blood pressure two hundred for hours at a time and that sheer stress effect can you know rough up the artery so to speak and and predispose to um, uh, plaques is one of the concepts this might be a really dumb question it probably is but does your blood pressure go up when you exercise yeah yeah oh, clearly yeah. it does right and so um but i thought that with all the muscles um working and the va- and the and the and the arteries opening up in those muscles yeah. the blood pressure would actually go down but it Dinkum goes up. Yeah, so acutely it goes up. Yeah. In the longer term, uh, exercise is very good at lowering the blood pressure, lowering the heart rate, but but actually during exercise your blood pressure goes up. So is there something sort of teleological about this that we shouldn't be doing so much exercise for so long from an early age, do you reckon? Well, that's the, that's the concept. You know, often in medicine it's not a linear relationship between, yeah. you know, exercise and, and health. So we know that people who exercise regularly live longer, overall have a lower incidence of cardiovascular disease and even a lower incidence of some cancers. Mm. But there may be a J-shaped tip, a J-shaped trend, if you like, a sting in the tail with too much um, exercise from an early age. And it's a bit like atrial fibrillation um, that people who... Our endurance athletes have a three to five fold increased risk 
of atrial fibrillation. Oh, my God. So endurance athleticism is not all it's cracked up to be. (laughs) (laughs) Great for mental and physical health, but, you know, I suppose as with everything, there can be a little... A little downside. Stick to staying on the couch and watching SBS. Um, so what is your advice for exercise and these um, high episodes of hypertension? Is there Should we be speaking to GPs and having a check before we go out on or once a year and before we go out and have um, these um, training programs? So, you know, in this study, this showed an increase in, in, in plaques in those that were exercising for more than eight hours a week from before the age of 30. Mm. That second group did not show any difference in coronary plaques. So those that start exercising after the age of 30, even to very extreme levels. Um, I think generally it's worth um, seeing your doctor if you haven't been exercising and then you're planning to start. But I don't necessarily see that that you need to see them annually if you're exercising regularly. And did they look at the diets of people as well? Because I know that, and this is just something very specific, but what's the, I'm sure there's like an impact in if people are using, if you're an endurance athlete, like the energy gels, which is full of caffeine or... I'm sure there's lots of variables that could go into this, but did they look at diet as well? Yeah, it was one of the hypotheses as to why um, there may be an increased plaque because of high caloric diet, high protein diet. They did look at cholesterol profiles and there was no difference between the groups. Um, but, yeah, that may well be a factor. I like how you said that you get to the... As cardiologists, you get to the heart through the leg. As psychiatrists, we get to the heart through the head. You know, yeah. so and, and there's, there's no procedure, no blood, is, no blood is shed generally. Um, hey, can I ask you something totally off beam, Peter? I mean, in the when you came in before the show, I said, look, you're not going to get through all your points, and I'm going to ask you something just totally out there. Do you remember about was it 25 years ago? There was a study done on intercessory prayer and cardiac uh, events. Can you remember this, or is it just me? Because I'm older than you. No. Okay. Well, then I won't ask that question. Well, there was a study done, and this goes on for endless debates in my family, right? There was a study done where um, there was a group of people in coronary care, and um, they didn't know, but half the people were prayed uh, for by a group of by people who like, I guess, like to pray, and a group and half weren't. And the group who were prayed for, not knowing they were being prayed for, did better than the group of people who didn't. It was called the effect of intercessory prayer on cardiac function or something like that. and it's been apparently repeated dozens of times. The study's been repeated dozens of times, but the results haven't borne out that intercessory prayer helps. But it goes to show that sometimes science tells you something in one study which may be then counteracted in another, yeah? or how people can use that study. And I'm, you know, I don't mind if people pray for me. I think that's quite nice. Yeah. But people who I know who are strong prayers say, see, here's evidence that prayer works. So you can, I reckon science... Peter, see now I'm focusing on you. Our listeners can't say this, but I'm, I'm trying not to look at your fantastic head of hair. Um, <laughs> science, science is like the new religion, isn't it? People can use it as they want it for different things, don't you think? Yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> Hit him with a heart. This is nothing about the heart, yeah, mate. Yeah. <laughs> well, I was going to use that to go tangentially. Oh, towards go tangential. Go yeah, tangential. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I think yoga is something really interesting that we're oh. looking at more and more in, in heart disease. Love yoga. Yeah. Um, and we're just, we're just kicking off this big study, um, which is the first randomised study to look at the impact of yoga on atrial fibrillation. Because there are ways in which yoga can reset your internal nervous system. So, you know, we talk about the autonomic nervous system, the involuntary sort of flight-fright 
um, business. And yeah, so we're about to do the first study in that. There've been a few studies that have looked at the impact of uh, yoga on fainting. Um, yeah. And uh, and shown some nice effects, and also on on heart function and heart failure. So hang on, how do how do I sign up for this? Because <laughs> are you using Iyengar Hatha? What sort of yoga study are you doing? Yeah, no, that, that's uh, we've looked a lot yeah, at this. Put him on the spot. Yeah. 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 So only people with atrial fibrillation, oh, okay. Dr. Mal. Sorry. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yes. So if if you do have AF, and a listener might be one of those patients, and they're on medication. Is yoga going to have an effect? Are you going to be able to... Well, that's what exactly what we're looking at. So, you know, in science we talk about randomised controlled trials. So, um, you know, this is a cross-sectional study that we've talked about. We talk about observational studies, uh, which is where we observe a, a behaviour um, associated with a condition, and then this is the gold standard. So this is where we take a bunch of people and a computer-generated coin toss, if you like, you do yoga, you exercise... And we'll see what the impact is. So you can be on medication? Yes, you can. Yep. Yeah. Or you could be just first diagnosed and not be on anything yet? Correct. They would be good to study. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> yes, who's a new trial director? <laughs> well, yeah, I'm interested. So you're just doing an exercise group and what exercise will they be doing? So the National Heart Foundation recommendations are up to 150 minutes per week. Of of whatever form of exercise you like. Uh, We talk about moderate intensity being an exercise level where you can only speak in phrases as a rough guide to to sort of how much you're pushing to break up um, periods of sitting. And the other thing that we're looking at more and more is some element of strength training, so not just walking. Yeah. Hey, yeah. Hey, Peter. Can I ask you a question about artificial intelligence? Because, um, like, it's all I can perseverate about for the last sort of year. I reckon it's the implications are just too big to yep. comprehend. Overwhelming. What are the implications of AI for cardiology? <laughs> a show into itself, but um, yeah. yeah I can uh, look, one of the really cool aspects that I've already seen with AI is that. So, one of the um, tests that we do in cardiology all the time is a standard ECG. So that's the little electrodes on the chest, and we look at the heart rhythm. Um, we look. At, we can get a lot of information from that, but now with AI, there've been studies where. Uh, the um, computer, if you like, can look at the ECG and determine your likelihood of having heart failure, for example. So get rather than away. seriously, rather than sending everyone off for an echo, you get a like a spit out fifty percent likelihood that you'll have heart failure within five years. See, yeah. I don't want to know that. Is I that mean, on just <laughs> anyone? <laughs> yeah, well, that, <laughs> so just on any any like on me, any yeah, standard ECG. Not here yet in Australia, but at some centres um, around the US are already starting to look at this. The other, the other aspect of AI, which I thought would be the saving grace, particularly yeah. for psychiatrists and yeah. cardiologists, amateur yeah. psychiatrists, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> okay, might be, <laughs> um, is that we, we, we would hope that as, as doctors we'll always keep our place because we can provide empathy and that, that calming hand. But now there's even um, studies looking at the um, impact of empathy that chatbots can deliver and yes. surprisingly they're performing pretty well. See, I had this discussion with a, 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 an old registrar um, who's now a consultant and I've always been on the – this is not about cardiology. I've always been of the opinion, yep, AI will never take over as a psychotherapist. It just can't. It can't mm. replicate that human nuance, interaction, the look in your eyes. And this is a whole other show to itself. He basically convinced me it can. Like – and it's yeah, it, yes, I, and I because as a psychologist, I'm like, <laughs> no, I will always. Like, but the I'm curious about the 
receiver's experience mm. of that? Because if you know it's a chatbot, mm. do you think, oh, this is mm. empathy or is this real, you know, empathy yeah. or yeah, manufactured? Yeah. And is this the same as seeing a psychologist? Yeah, well, I, I mean, seriously, Peter, what are the chances that your job will be taken over by an AI something in 10 years' time? <laughs> Never? Uh, Never? <laughs> no, I, I think elements of it will, yeah. and I think, and I think we, you know, we embrace that as a yeah. as a medical community. You know that, um, you know, our time's limited. Yeah. It, it's hard to get resources out there. Yeah. It's easier in metropolitan areas than regional or remote areas. So, mm. anything that we can we can bring, mm. I suppose the procedural aspect, mm-hmm. at least in cardiology, would seem. Um, relatively safe robots Rob- so then you have robots yeah <laughs> i've just got a question with that the ai technology were you able to do that before this technology and then what are the ethics around telling someone you've got like a 80 percent chance of having <sighs> good question a heart yeah i i I'm going to um, handball that one to Dr. Kunal because he, <laughs> he is looking at the ethics of, of providing certain sure. information and the implications of that. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I think I might leave that for him. But were you, were you able to predict that kind of stuff before this AI? No, program? so that okay. absolutely not. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely not. There are signs on the ECG that suggest that people's heart might not be functioning so well, but nothing like. Um, what has been developed now, yeah. essentially wow. by feeding hundreds and thousands of ECGs into a system and then looking at outcomes yep. and and the um, computer seeing things that we can't see with yeah. the human-trained yep. cardiologist eye. Is there anything else that AI can do? I mean, I mean it will do a lot more, but currently um, the, you talked about looking at ECGs like heart electrophysiology and predicting cardiac failure. Anything else it can do? Well, the, the one we're really really interested in from the, the heart rhythm side is just trying to get better outcomes for, for people with atrial fibrillation. Yep. So just understanding the chaos of atrial fibrillation in the heart and perhaps yep. AI can, can see through that things that we, we can't see at the moment. AI for AF. AI for AF. Yeah. <laughs> um, and what, just going back to the epidemiology of AF, how common is it? So if you live to the age of um, 60, you've got a one in four chance of developing atrial fibrillation. No way. Just hang on. Command bold that. One in four. One in four. If you hit 60, you've got a one in four chance <laughs> of uh, so developing I knew, I knew atrial fibrillation. It was common, that is extraordinary. I didn't know it was that common. Yeah. So AF becomes the most common cause of uh, stroke as we, as we get older. So high blood pressure and atrial fibrillation. Um, so and uh, you know fivefold increased risk of heart failure wow. if you have atrial fibrillation. Wow. Mm. wow! So while I'm holding you on that thought, if you give that information to someone and they get a bit freaked out by it, and they sort of yeah, wh- where do they go for help and support and extra information? Because it could be mind blowing all of this information that you're giving them. Mm. Where do you recommend people go for support? Well, I, I suppose initially what we do is we, we give them a plan and perspective on, on that data and, and give them... So, for example, we have great medications now to protect people against stroke. Um, you know, we put people on anticoagulants. Um, but, yeah, there, there, there is a, a lot of information, you know, through the National Heart Foundation uh, website, um, the Cardiac Society of Australia website, Heart Rhythm Society, which is a broader... Um, international community for um, heart rhythm disorders, mm-hmm. and and also our favourite our favourite uh, medical group, 
Which one? GPs. GPs. Oh, GPs. Absolutely. And also, if you're a bit unsure, nurse on call, 24-7, seven days a week. And the number is one three hundred sixty sixty twenty four. And that goes straight through to your lounge room, nurse. It goes, yes. Yeah, <laughs> I'll take, uh, I'm more than happy to take your call. Um, Peter, we've spoken about some really exciting ways technology and medicine are starting to kind of come together. I guess in the last minute or so of um, the time we've got for you today, what do you think most excited about for in the future of cardiology? Well, I, I suppose I'm biased towards the rhythm, the rhythm sides of, of the heart. So, um, you know, look, there is this new technology. So traditionally um, to do an ablation of the heart to fix rhythm problems, we've used either heat energy or freezing energy. And there's now this um, concept of something called electroporation where basically you are able to punch individual little holes in a cell and let the contents spew out and the, and, and the cell dies. It came... You know, it's been around for 20, 30 years, initially with cancer therapy. Um, So you could open a cell, inject a drug into that cell or inject a gene into that um, cell and then close it up so you can be reversible or irreversible. So that's something something new that's just hit the Australian shores uh, in the last year or so. Cells are very small. Yeah. (laughs) How do you find one cell to inject this stuff in? Yeah, so it's it's an electrical nanopulse. Get out of town. That is amazing. What's it, what's it called again? Electroporation or pulsed field ablation. Pulsed field ablation. Oh, I'm going to Google amazing. that when I get home. <laughs> so am I. Wow, yeah. Thank you so much, Peter. It's been great chatting with you. Look, like you say, we could spend like an entire show, an entire week talking about just one of the topics you brought up. Will you stick with us for the rest of the show? Absolutely. Fantastic stuff. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. Now we're going to speak with Dr. Kunal Verma, and he is a legend. And uh, 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 the reason that I know about him is that a friend of mine went to see him uh, because she'd had a thoracic aortic um, aneurysm that had split and she was an ex-nurse and she said, oh, my God, I have just seen the most incredible doctor of my life. She doesn't see many doctors. Well, she hasn't so. met me. So. No, well, and, <laughs> oh, she, and this is why we've got this gorgeous man on our radio show. But let's go back to the beginning and find out what the Dickens he does and why he is so gorgeous and talented and intelligent and helpful to patients. Why can't I? Such a such a a, a gratuitous introduction. I don't think I deserve all of that, to be honest. Um, But uh, to to answer your question, I think if I heard the question correctly, it was, what do I do? Um, So I... um, uh, I work in a team of people. That's not just me on my own. Uh, but we, uh, in a genetic service, we basically, um, if I had to summarise so let, it. So let's go back. Yeah. Cardiology first and then yeah. geneticists. But how did you get into cardiology like um, Peter Kissler? Oh, so, well, I um, uh, I also loved, and I come at it from a different angle and I'll explain it in a second. Um, I, I, I love that cardiac arrest side of things, that acuity of, <laughs> of looking after patients, you know, that life and death scenario, the bringing people back literally from from uh, from death. And that's what got me into cardiology. And then when I did cardiology, look, I'll, I'll be honest, I didn't map this route. I... I um, 
definitely didn't think I'll end up being a geneticist, but I uh, found inherited conditions, conditions that more than one person in the family have. They're getting it young. Why does this occur? They found very interesting. And then I thought I'll do some genetics uh, to learn some more. Before I knew it, I was loving that too, and I thought I'll just finish this and I'll just train in all of genetics. So then I, I said uh, it happened. Uh, and what's your training? What does it to train to be a geneticist? What just does like, that involve? It's just like training to be a cardiologist. So like Peter <laughs> uh, and I, we both did a basic training as a, as, a, as, a, as a junior doctor. You train in all kinds of medical fields. Then you pick your area of specialty and Peter would have done three. I did three as well in cardiology and then I did an additional three to train as a geneticist. So uh, it's its own branch as a, as a subspecialty. Okay, so if somebody gets referred to you, so... Um, let's talk about what types of genetic inherited cardiac diseases we can have. Look, there's um, there's probably now about uh, a dozen to two dozen genetic heart conditions that we know of that we can actually pick up through a genetic test. And then the whole purpose of coming to see us is if one person gets diagnosed, we try and protect the rest of the family. And knowing early is um, can be and without being dramatic life-saving because if you know that that person is at the risk of the same cardiac arrest that affected their uncle their father their child heaven forbid then you can take steps you know I might work with someone like Peter to say look Peter there's a genetic condition in this family I'm seeing the 24 year old son of the 48 year old father who dropped dead on the on his bicycle a, a fortnight ago and I'm really worried that this son's got the same genetic condition as his father and you know, and so when he sees Peter, I'd be saying to Peter, "Look, um, we think about uh, something like a defibrillator being going into that young man's chest. It's quite a, it's not, it's not a thing that that we take lightly because, as Peter mentioned, it's a surgery. You know, it's a procedure to put a, a, a box into someone's chest. But we make that decision because what an awful outcome in that father, and we want to prevent that in the child. Um, that kind of links so back to my question I asked Peter earlier about the ethics of telling people." Um, how much or predicting a percentage of how much chance someone might have of having the same cardiac event. And I guess, yeah, so what are the ethics behind that? And at what percentage is the point of like, for the example that you said before, if there's a 40% chance, do we then do that defibrillator or does it have to be higher? Like what point is that cut off? Okay. um, So um, what you, your question really, what it um, pertains to is something called genetic counseling. So in our field, um, I work with genetic counsellors, and so some patients are seen by me, some are seen by the counsellors, some by both, where we, in essence, pre-test counselling is preparing the patient for the possible outcomes of that test. And the outcomes include we don't find something, we do find something. If we do find something, how are you going to go with that information? You know, Is this going to freak you out completely? Are you going to collapse in a heap because this is something, information you don't want? You know, I'm giving you the answer for your mother's. You know, I, We see patients, sudden death, the sudden death scenario is the one that, that is the most heart-wrenching and the most impactful in our clinic. So we might sit with a family of five where... Um, and we did that, you know, just a month ago, I can remember a family where one of the four children had died suddenly, and I'm sitting with a genetic counsellor with the surviving children and the parents, and talking through what happened to that family and what we can do. And some families, and understandably so, aren't ready to receive that information, you know, maybe they don't want to know just yet. And um, it almost, in a sense, we have to poke and prod and push and, and work out whether this information will help 
the family rather than make their life more miserable and hinder them. So that's genetic counselling. And even then, despite preparing them to the best of our ability, in many circumstances, we get unexplained reactions. You know, you get a grief reaction. So in many families, they come back and they are so grateful for an answer. Mm. In other families, that that answer um, opens the floodgates for a, for a whole another aspect that they haven't considered. For example, um, we diagnose a condition that is inherited, meaning the child died, the parent also carries the same fault, mutation, but the parent was lucky. The parent never had a problem in their life. That guilt that that parent feels Mm. that I pass that on to my child, Mm. even though we know medically that that's not the case, this is Mm. variability, but to talk a family through that, we often can't anticipate how they're going to cope with that result if we come back mm-hmm. that it's inherited. So that's that's what we specialise in. A lot of what we do, not half is the medical aspect and expert genetic testing, but half is preparing a family for what could be found. And then the other aspect of your question was, how do you decide? Look, it's very variable. We, we actually don't um, have, uh, for most of these conditions, we don't have a specific threshold. But that's where we, we dive into literature and if we find a specific spelling mistake i might say to someone like peter look i we don't know much about this but there's only six families reported in the world and in those six families every individual who carries this spelling mistake goes on to get really serious dangerous heart rhythms so or half of them or a third do and i think at a point where it's 25 percent one in four people are getting really serious that would be enough for me to say to peter i think this is dangerous enough that you should could you please talk to the patient about something like a defibrillator Kunal, can you tell us what some of those inherited genetic cardiac conditions are? So there are. So if you go back to what Peter was saying, he was talking about the different aspects to a um, a heart. The best analogy that I and I didn't come up with this myself, so I can't claim it. Um, was that the heart is like a house? So think of it like having doors, walls, pipes, and electrical wiring and um, so there are inherited or genetic problems that affect all four aspects Mm -hmm. the walls which are the muscles the doors the valves the electrical system what peter specializes in and the plumbing which is what an interventional cardiologist looks after the pipes in the heart and um so when so when we find a family where someone has died suddenly our clinic specialises in trying to work out well which of those four was involved Mm -hmm. usually it's just one it's very rare to have more than one uh, system faulty and we do that through a genetic test and so it all depends on the circumstances like the athletes that you know we see endurance athletes dying suddenly on the on the marathon course or the or the soccer players on the sports field there's a certain set of genetic conditions we think about in contrast there's the children who die suddenly in contrast there's the 54 hours in it so there's different conditions for different um types of arrests that 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 uh, athletic one with a sudden the tragic sudden death of a, of a high performance athlete often is can be due to like a, a build up of muscle below the the valve yeah that's right a condition called hypertrophic cardiomyopathy but we now know of about a dozen different genetic conditions just like that one but there are electrical problems there are plumbing problems that can yeah. cause it there are um, the muscle build up or a weak muscle yeah. all of which we can evaluate through genetic testing so often the autopsy will pick it up 
you know, and the and the and the expert pathologist who looks at the body, if the family agree for an autopsy, they will make a diagnosis. But um, sometimes we don't know. We call it unascertained, and that's also what we do, where someone has died and no one knows. Even the autopsy did not point towards an answer, and that's about it's a good proportion of cases where we have no answers, and there that's where genetic testing is very helpful. We're talking with Dr. Kunal Verma about inherited conditions, heart conditions especially. Benny. EpiPen here. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so, so um, Kunal, how do you differentiate or tell people the difference between a family history and an inherited cardiac history? Oh, right. So, uh, and that, so um, in essence, um, everyone comes to us either with a genetic a, a condition in them that someone like Peter or another cardiologist sends them to us and saying I'm suspicious this is genetic or they come to us with a suspicious family history and our job is really to convert that suspicious family history into a named condition that's what we do really so yeah and and the suspicious family history for the for the listeners is things like and and you know these were things that um that that were just accepted in families and there was never an answer to them but what I'm saying to you now is that there is answers and we can find a clear explanation. So the sudden death in the family, the unexplained deaths in family was the classic, the, the people who died in their sleep. And, and I've seen so many families where this story is there. You know, I just lost my uncle. He went to office one day, he died, and we were told it was a heart attack. It was in the 1970s. That's all my mother knows about it. But little, you know, there was no, maybe there was an autopsy done. Maybe there wasn't. We don't have data. It was many, many years ago. And so many of these families now, as we can actually convert that family history into a, oh, no, it wasn't just a heart attack. It was a genetic condition. This is the name of the condition. And you carry the condition too, right? And now that you, we know you carry it or people in your family carry it, we can do something to prevent what happened to your late uncle. So, yeah, to answer your question, it's, it all starts with the family history and our job is to put a name to that family history. Okay, and then you would probably give odds to the patients about yes. whether these events are going to occur. Yes. And within those odds, there might be some things that you could say to decrease their risk of oh, these yes. events. Yeah. So what might those be? So there are lots of things we do now to decrease risk. Um, things like the devices that Peter puts in, in, in and Peter also specialises in doing procedures to burn the heart, as he mentioned, which would make, reduce the risk of dangerous heart rhythms in some of these conditions. In some of these conditions, some of them are very responsive to medications. So very simple medications that we've been using for many years have now been shown in a certain subset to almost reverse the genetic condition. So it has heart problems and then the medication actually reverses the damage. Um, in some of these conditions, we um, recommend a limitation of exercise. So coming a bit back to, back to what Peter was talking about, in some of the genetic conditions, we would say exactly, and the advice that I give patients is it almost mirrors what Peter says. If you can do exercise to a level where you can keep talking in phrases that's good enough but anything more than that has been shown in your genetic condition to make your condition worse and make your risk of dropping dead worse make your risk of a dangerous heart rhythm worse so we have lifestyle modification we have medications and procedures and amongst all these things we have remarkable success in being able to reduce the risk of problems we can never eliminate i wish we could eliminate but we can't eliminate we can reduce the risk much more than we were able Mm -hmm. to and things also like smoking, obesity, Of course. Diets. The standard things that we recommend yes. to everyone yes. still play a role. Yes. Um, but there are some specific things we do all based on your gene test result. Mm-hmm. And 
That would be a blood test. We can do it on blood. We do it on saliva. We can do it on a hair follicle. We can, you know, your DNA is everywhere, essentially. Every part of you has got DNA. So some, you know, in children, in babies, we do a cheek swab. In children who don't want to have blood tests, we can do a cheek swab. So we have multiple options. Wow. Uh, can I, we were having, I was having this discussion with my wife in the car yesterday and I was trying to sound very knowledgeable, you know, so I was basically faking it. But I had heard that the – let me get this right so I don't sound like a complete fool. Um, your, your risk of a cardiac event yeah, is mostly genetic, not mostly lifestyle. Is that right? Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> wrong, God, I hope wrong. she's not, I hope she's not listening. No. So, um, it's, it's, okay, so if you take the average person on the, on the street, um, about, fi- about 50, no, you're, you're close, but you're not quite there. About 50% of oh. your cardiac risk is heritable. Oh, there you go. Oh, so right. it's a lot, right? If you think about it, you know, and 50% being environmental based. Yeah. And that's a rough estimate. And and what that says is really, despite doing all the things that we recommend to you as, as specialists, if you come and see us, you know, all the things you talked about, um, you know, avoiding smoking, your obesity, keeping your, doing exercise, still there's a lot of inherited risk. Mm. Peter? Yeah, you know, I was just going to come back to the question about defibrillators because um, the listeners out there might think, well, you know, any any risk, if I'm at a 20% risk or if I'm at a 50% risk, you know, surely I'm going to have a defibrillator. And and um, a, a defibrillator is not a, not a benign process. It's still a relatively large device, often in a teenager or someone in their 20s, which they, which they carry, you know, through their life. Um, people can have infections, the batteries need to be replaced, mm. you can have issues with the leads. Nowadays, um, we have something called a subcutaneous defibrillator. So before we'd have to put a wire inside the heart, now we can put one around around the heart, which is something that's often um, done in younger people and, and athletic people. So um, this this uh, question about whether people should have a defibrillator is a really, a really challenging mm. one. And and one I don't think will be replaced by AI or a chatbot. <laughs> I think Dr. Canal's role is very safe. Yeah. You've picked the one role in medicine, Dr. Canal, that is totally <laughs> safe from AI. So, and I was just thinking about giving patients information and freaking them out. But one of the things that might happen for them also is time. Mm. Time to digest, time to build up your confidence, time to... You know, and I think that's a very helpful thing mm. for people with this sort of information that might upset them and freak them out. And I think the guilt, survivor guilt, passing on genes. Do, is there? A, do you have anything to add to that? Um, time is um, what you're really talking about. Is 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 the fact that we don't see patients once or twice. Sometimes we see them half a dozen times over a year, and and help them process their result. I'll give you I'll give you an example of a family. And in genetics, you know, because these families are so few and far between, we we speak about an individual family. Whereas in Peter's field, because AF is as he said one in four and sixty people, he's got thousands of people on which he can talk about data. We, we, we might have, sorry, Doctor Kuna, yeah, yeah. uh, Kuna, we might have to just cut that short because we are running a little bit ahead of sure, time, sure. behind time. <laughs> But quickly summary quickly, time you were... yeah summary is um sudden infant death syndrome children yeah. who died without a cause yeah. we now find causes and it, it very um 
impactful for those parents to say it wasn't just SIDS, it was a genetic condition. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much, and I really wish we had longer. We're going to make you promise to come back on the radio show. Promise, yes. promise. Professor Peter Kistler, you're going to come back on the radio show? He always Absolutely. does. Yeah, EpiPen's <laughs> twisting his arm. Uh- <laughs> Hi, this is Panel Beater. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page.